let's say we've identified the company that we want to work at, we've got some of their interest, and then they want to bring us in for an interview. How should we prepare for this interview? I would definitely try to aim for getting more than one company. Two or three is it's probably even better because there's no guarantee that you'll, one, get an offer from the first one. Also, because of negotiation power. If you get an offer from, from one company and you have an offer from another company, that gives them a reason to offer you more things like a sign-on bonus or to bump up the salary to, to match or surpass the, the other company's offer. So that's why I think it's super important to make sure you get at least two, you know, three or more is even better. Welcome to the New Line Podcast. Our show is a conversation with experienced software engineers where we discuss new technology, career advice, and help you be amazing at work. I'm Nate Murray. And I'm Amelia Wattenberger. And today we're talking to Esko Obong, who is an engineer at Uber and the co-author of our book, JavaScript Algorithms. In this episode, we talk about how to get a coding job like a pro. This episode is chock full of super practical advice on every step of the process. We talk through how to get your resume noticed by hiring managers, how to get referrals, and what to say when you reach out. We talk about the negotiating advantage you get when you run multiple interview processes in parallel. We talk about how to structure your learning for the data structures and algorithms portion of the interview. I think whiteboarding algorithms is something that a lot of developers struggle with, but it's a game you have to play if you want to work at the top companies. Esco, he gives some really practical advice on how to make sure you're ready before you get to the whiteboard. And then once you pass the interview, we give some advice on how to negotiate. In this episode, I'll even share a story from my own past when I lost $30,000 a year just because I didn't negotiate properly. So listen to this episode and you won't make the same mistake. I also want to let you know that our new line stay at home sale is still going on. Nearly all of our books, including JavaScript algorithms, Amelia's full stack D3, and about a dozen more are currently 50% off. You can learn more about that at newline.co slash stay home. That's newline.co slash stay home, all one word, lowercase. So without further ado, here's how to master a programming interview with Esco. I've been noticing, I'm sure you have on Twitter, so uh, the coronavirus is going crazy right now. And there's a lot of people that are getting laid off. Actually, even one of our own authors this morning, he was telling me he just got laid off. So there's a lot of people actually in the market who are looking. And your story is interesting, which we'll get into because you have a lot of like really good advice and how to run a job process, how to find companies that you want to work for. So yeah, I just want to talk about that, that whole process of like looking for a job, interviewing, and then actually negotiating the offer once you get a job. So maybe we start really where this idea of like finding a company you want to work for, what kind of recommendations would you give for people like that? Oh, yeah. So like the way I see jobs personally is it's a way to, to practice full-time, essentially. Right. A full-time job is basically learn to practice for your skills that you want to develop, uh, essentially. So I think about what are my goals? What am I looking for? What skills do I want to develop? And then I search for companies that give me that opportunity. For example, three years back, I was interested in, in peer-to-peer algorithms. So I started looking more to like BitTorrent. DigitalOcean companies where you can kind of get more expertise in that area. Earlier in my career, I was more focused on front end. So I look for more companies where you have consumer facing products where you get to like design UIs and like really test things, get, get in front of a lot of users, eyeballs. Nowadays, I'm more focused on distributed systems and like high scale problems. So I search for companies that are like really hardcore engineering companies, really large scale, you know, really good focus on engineering, engineering decisions and data driven processes. So I think that, you know, once you know what you care about the most, once you know what your goals are, then you can start to evaluate companies based on what they can offer you in terms of that that growth. Tell us a little bit about your background. So you joined Uber, was it last year? So I actually joined Uber in 2015. Okay. Then I left in 2017 to, to build a company in the crypto space. But that didn't work out. The whole regulatory environment was really messy. 
we had to pivot to something that didn't really work. So I ended up just shutting it down and, and freelancing for a bit before going back to full time. So when you came back to Uber this the second time, you didn't just go to Uber and say, hey, guys, can I come back, right? You actually ran a process across a lot of different companies. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a funny story because like, I, I loved working at Uber the first time, but like I was looking for something new. <laughs> and it just so happened that Uber was still a good fit. So I, I went back to Uber, but actually to be with a lot of different companies, I think like total probably nine across on-sites and phone screens. I didn't go on-site for all the phone screens I did because it was more of like priority of companies that I wanted to go to and backup companies. And then like just and something that kind of, some companies piqued my interest. So I just I phone screened with them. I also did Triple Byte too. So I did a few companies through them as well. But yeah, that process was very interesting. Basically, my previous goal was to become, <laughs> so to found a startup, you know, become, hit it big, you know, get hundreds of millions, get billions, whatever it is, and then I'll be financially free. But I learned that, you know, through watching financial education videos on YouTube and other sources and articles, concept of FIRE, financial independence, retire early. Mm-hmm. And with FIRE, I realized that you can be financially free with relatively small amount of money compared to like um, these successful startup founders out there. Like, this is a lot of money, but still, like with two, three million, you can actually sustain your entire lifestyle for almost forever. <laughs> if you invest it correctly, if you spend a certain amount per year, you can sustain yourself that long. So I was more into like trying to find startups, trying to get to that height. And now I'm more of trying to find a stable situation where I'm building up my, my funds, I'm working towards fire. And then after I reach fire, I can go out and do all the entrepreneurial things that I want to do mm-hmm. without the risk of kind of like being set back. Right. So because of that, I started to go for the, the top companies. Also coming from Uber, I had a really good reputation. I was able to like kind of easily get my from, get interest from these top companies as well. So it was still a good, good reason to go forward with with those. So basically, you know, apply through through the websites. A lot of times, I have to actually go on LinkedIn and find recruiters to get their attention because if you apply, there's a very low chance of you actually getting into the pipeline. There's so many people, especially at these top companies like Google, like uh, Amazon. So many people are applying to them every day that recruiters don't really have the bandwidth to screen every single application. They rely a lot on referrals. So like referrals and direct reach out to LinkedIn is super effective for getting your attention. I remember Snapchat. I actually didn't move forward with any Snapchat interview, but I was trying to get in touch with them for like three months or like three, four months. Mm-hmm. And they finally reached back out to me a week after I joined Uber, <laughs> well. which is funny. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like definitely just reach out to recruiters directly on LinkedIn or finding your contacts who work the company to refer you and make sure you don't re- apply before you get somebody to refer you because that kind of messes up the entire system. Like they're not able to refer you once that happens. That's interesting. Um, that yeah. Happens. So yeah. the, I had someone ask me a question on our discord channel the other day and uh, he said, Nate, I'm trying to find a job and I'm having a lot of trouble doing it. Um, and I'm like, Oh, what have you been doing so far? And he's like, Oh, well, I heard that you need to have a really good GitHub profile. So I've been making commits every day to my repo and I'm just hoping to be discovered, but I just don't think it's enough. (laughs) And yeah. So what kind of advice would you give to that person? They're trying to get a job, but they're just adding to their GitHub, hoping to be discovered. (laughs) The reason why I laugh is because I get how they could think that because of so many stories of people getting reached out to on GitHub and kind of making it big from there. But that is... A significantly small percentage of people who actually get jobs. You know, that requires a recruiter to actually spend time going through profiles, filtering them, which is pretty time intensive. So I, I would think that's like a really small actual amount of the funnel. It's mostly from referrals. So I would say like don't focus on getting discovered. Focus on like knowing which companies you want to go for. Yeah, and that also brings another point too. Like at that point, you're not really targeting any specific company. I would suggest to think about your current skill set, where you want to go next, and then 
view yourself search for those companies. Right. And then depending on what company it is, you can develop yourself in that way towards the requirements for those companies, towards the minimum requirements for it. I would say, yeah, well, once you find those companies, going back to the previous advice, find people who, who may work there to get referrals. Yeah. Or find them recruiters on LinkedIn and, and reach out directly to them. I think that's really good advice. There was a, a nuanced point, which is like, if you want to work at a company don't apply there first, actually contact a recruiter or get a referral first. Because a lot of the times, you know, it's maybe helpful for people to understand the economics of recruiters, which is they get paid if they recommend someone or they introduce them to someone who they actually end up hiring, you know, and the recruiter fees can be pretty high. You know, it might be a percentage of your first year salary, which could be like 10, 20, $30,000. And so, yeah, if you can reach out to a recruiter first and then that recruiter, they actually probably already know the people in the HR department of the companies they're recruiting for. And so they can help you navigate that process. What do you say when you reach out to these recruiters? I assume they're getting a lot of cold contacts. Actually, sorry, I wanted to bring up another point based on what Nate said. So not only is it the recruiters who, who get commissions to refer you to other companies, there's also the internal recruiters that actually, they don't get commission, but it still helps them towards the, the KPIs and their goals on their team to be able to fill roles. So that's also, reaching out to internal recruiters is also like even more effective and, and super useful. And then going back to, to your question, so when I reach out, basically I tell them my current experience, my current roles and what I'm looking for, and let them know that I actually pull a specific role from the careers page and give it to them and say, this role is something that's really in line with what I want to do, or it's really in line with my skill set, and I'm very interested in your company. And then basically just goes from there. So let's talk about at this first layer of the funnel, all of the places that you can do to be proactive about finding the company that you want to work for. So another one that I know of is also you can look at the investors. So for example, when I was at IFT, they had an investment by Andreessen. And Andreessen actually has a recruiting arm because all of the A16Z companies are just hiring pretty much all the time. And that's one of the services that the their venture firm actually provides is they also have a recruiting arm. So that was also kind of a, not really a secret, but that was one of the paths that you could also use to get into these super high quality companies was you could actually go to the recruiters that are part of their um, investment firm. Are there any other areas that come to mind? How you can get an in other than just like sent emailing your application? A lot of times you can go to meetups and you meet people who work at the companies that you're interested in or like adjacent. Right. And that's a good way to get a referral because, and this is, I was surprised to, to realize this, but people will refer you even if they don't know you very well, if they haven't worked with you. As long as you can present yourself as somebody who knows what they're doing, they'll give you a chance because it was also an incentive for them to refer you. They usually get a bonus when they refer you as well. Mm. Yeah. And I guess also Twitter too, if you know someone through Twitter or GitHub who also works for that company, you could you could try reaching out to them yep. as Another well. good one is yeah. Blind. Are you, are you familiar with the Blind app? Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's a really good place for referrals too. People, I see people posting there all the time. I've referred a few people from mine as well. That's really interesting. I've never heard of it. What What is the Blind app? So Blind is a South Korean app, basically kind of like secret where, but it's more focused on companies. So basically you sign up with your company email and that confirms that you actually work for the company. Huh. Then you can access to like a, a forum or like a group chat of, well, not a group chat, more like a forum. You can post uh, about your company and you can see other people's companies as well. And just like a private lounge for your own company. And it's very cool because you can talk about many things that, that are going on at the company without worrying about people know who you are. <laughs> so like there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad because of that. The good part is that people talk a lot about salaries, income, how much they're making, and they compare salaries a lot. 
Um, especially when they get a new offer, they post an offer and they ask for advice on is this good or is this, is this bad? Am I being lowballed? Should I ask for more? Should I get signed on? Is the equity good? You know, what's the opinion? A lot of that is happening online. I think that's super useful. But the downside is that because it's anonymous, you have know, tons of trolls and lots of negativity constantly. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. And so you'll use Blind to find people who work at that company and they'll they'll refer you? Doesn't yeah. that de-anonymize them? And how do they even know who you are? Is it just because they want to get the bonus? How does that, Tell me more about that. So that is a concern. Like A few people have asked uh, referrals and I've asked people for referrals as well. That's how I got burned by, I applied to Snapchat uh, and then I went on blind to find somebody who worked for Snapchat and they agreed to refer me, but then they came back and said that, oh, I'm already in the system so they couldn't do it. And then I had to wait like five months before I got any response at all. Mm. Well, basically you do get de-anonymized at that point, but it's fine because the way blind works is that you can change your username like once a day. So usually you would just change your username and then ask them. <laughs> so there's no way mm. I can link back mm-hmm. to you basically. <laughs> got it. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so that's the first step, which is like, I think like the first piece of advice is one, don't sit around waiting to be discovered. Two, once you've identified a company that you want to work at, the worst option is to just email them directly, just to email them your resume. It's much better to get some sort of intro. Even an anonymous intro through Blind is better than just emailing them your resume. Yep. And so then from there, Let's say we've identified the company that we want to work at, we've got some of their interest, and then they want to bring us in for an interview. How should we prepare for this interview? Cool. Yeah. So I would say, first things first, I would definitely try to aim for getting more than one company. Two is probably good. Two or three is it's probably even better because there's no guarantee that you'll, for one, get an offer from the first one. And since you'll be, you'll be practicing something for interviews, it's a good time for you to kind of go out and use that time to to use to exercise the, the skills that you developed at the time. And also because of negotiation power. If you get an offer from, from one company and you have an offer from another company, that gives them a reason to offer you more things like a sign-on bonus or to bump up the salary to, to match or surpass the, the other company's offer. So that's why I think it's super important to make sure you get at least two, you know, three or more is even better offers before you even go to the first interview and kind of set those up. Try to set them up around the same time because companies yeah. will try to give you like a deadline of an offer or they'll try to say, we need to fill this role now. Or, or you know, sometimes they even want to push out the scheduling because other people scheduled the time you were going to do it. So it's always good to make sure you schedule them around the same time so you can negotiate with the same offers. And so the idea there is like, so you want to identify all the companies that you want to apply to and then try your best to organize the interviews, you know, within what, the same week, the same two weeks? Yeah, ideally within the the same week, even two weeks, three weeks is acceptable, but like the best luck you'll have is if it's within the same week. Mm, Okay. So basically, yeah, you want to probably, yeah, you want to sort it by the least interest company at first, because essentially each time you interview, you got to get better and better. And it's funny how it works out. It's more about removing the anxiety from the interview. You know, once you remove all that overhead thought process of like worrying and kind of being nervous or being in a new environment or new context of like telling people about yourself, solving problems in front of them, that you get used to it after a while. So that's why I suggest to start off with the companies who are like your plan Bs and plan Cs first, and then move up the chain to your most desired companies. That's really good advice. What does the interview process usually look like at these bigger companies and how much does it vary between companies? Like, do they usually start with a phone screen or usually with an in-person interview? So that's a, yeah, that's an interesting question. It's a very nuanced. So like at companies that are, I guess, more startups 
or like more either a startup who's like really new, they don't have money resources, or a company who is not really tech focused, they'll do an interview that's based on your your actual skills. So they'll test you for the language that you know, the frameworks you know. They'll have you like do a take home project, or you build some kind of project on site with them, and they'll see like your actual practical coding skills to know that you can build something, and then you kind of hit the ground running. And that's just kind of the preferred approach for, for most people because, you know, day-to-day you're building software using the tools you're familiar with, using the language. So people really have no problem usually doing these types of interviews. And there's probably not much prep time besides practicing to make sure you can, do, you can code things fast, you know, reducing errors, being able to explain what you're doing to somebody else in a clear and concise way. And I think those are good things to practice on. But for the most part, you have all the hard skills already for those types of interviews. Now, for the, the more funded startups or the, or the bigger companies or the more desirable companies, they go more towards the theoretical approach as opposed to the practical approach. So they don't just want people who can hit the ground running. They want people who they know could kind of take on problems that are ambiguous and like learn new things or kind of like ramp up really fast or solve problems that they haven't seen before, solve really complex problems. That's the main focus for companies who are like more tech focused or more funded or, or just bigger or more desirable. And that involves questions that are like basically algorithms and data structures. So if you're familiar with leetcode.com, leetcode.com has all these types of questions, things like, you know, things about linked lists, binary search trees, graphs, things like that. They basically is considered to be a fundamental base of knowledge, data structures and algorithms that most people learn in college. Or even if you didn't go to college, you know, I went to college, but I actually dropped out and I learned most of this stuff on my own. So like, you can learn these things. And these are what are expected to be known by very, not even junior engineers, like college students. <laughs> So the actual content is not really complex once you really dig into it. It's more about having this kind of financial knowledge that everybody should have and then testing people on how they can solve problems using the same base set of skills that everybody has. So I think that's the core reason for why they test the way they do. It does seem off-putting and it, it does seem kind of bizarre because a lot of the questions, a lot of ways they're framed and the problems are completely removed from the day-to-day work that most people do. As opposed to testing for frameworks or building an app, you can be told to, to solve some obscure problem like, you know, find the shortest path from one cell to another in a matrix, something like that. And that's something you don't do every day. <laughs> so you would have to practice, you know, it's, I would say study like the SATs because this is not stuff you do day to day, although you're, you're smart enough to figure it out, understand the concepts because you aren't doing this day to day. Like I said before, your full-time job is like practice, you know, you get to practice full-time. Because you don't have that practice, you actually have to go ahead and really deliberately practice that stuff to really get it down and really get used to it, really be fluid with it so that you can solve problems that you haven't seen before. Studying data structures and algorithms seems like something that you hear a lot, but I feel like many people don't necessarily realize the level of effort. Can you tell us about like like the level of effort, like how many hours or how many problems or like how can we know if we've done enough? Like it seems like if I was to do every problem on leak code, it would take me like three years. Like it would take yeah. me so long. <laughs> so how do you, how much is enough? And then how do you manage what's left over? Yeah, that's, that's very true. It's really hard to know when you're ready. That's why I set up a process where I get good feedback loop. Like anytime I try to do something, I like to have good feedback loop to make sure that things are moving forward. I made a, a Trello post about this. It's like a, it's a Trello template you can use to organize your study plan. Um, essentially, I just identified different topics to study. And this process really started back in 2015 before I joined uh, Uber the first time. Mm-hmm. And I was interviewing one of the companies, including Google. Basically, I had looked up a bunch of different resources about how to interview. Cracking the Coding Interview was a book, super popular back then. I think it's pretty popular now still. 
And from that book, I kind of learned all the topics I need to cover, all the data structures I mentioned, like binary search trees, graphs, et cetera, algorithmic reversals, breadth first search, depth first search, et cetera. After learning those topics, I realized, okay, well, it's great to have this resource, but I need to have a better intuitive understanding of it by doing problems and getting more practice with it, reading materials from other sources to have a better insight and kind of connect different things in my mind about it to have a better understanding of it. So I just took those top level things as topics, created trailer cards for them, and then basically have a Kanban style board where there's a column that's to do, a column that's doing, and then there's a column that's finished. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit more than that, don't forget, but that's the general format of it. And essentially you kind of drag those cards into the to-do column for the week or two weeks that you want to spend time focusing on those topics. And then when you're done, drag it over to the done column. And then that way you can see how many topics you've covered, how many are left, how many you're currently doing. And week by week, you can see how many cards you're moving over to see like what your progress is, if you're slowing down, if you're speeding up, or if it's going at a good constant pace. So that's a good way to know what to study, to manage your time by studying, and then to know if you're ready, you really just have to go and do mock interviews or go to Lico.com and do a lot of questions. You know you're ready when you're able to consistently pass these questions or consistently pass mock interviews and not before that. Because <laughs> you're, you're given the opportunity right. where you have these similar types of questions on code, or you have access to people, maybe your friends or websites like Pramp.io, I think it is, that you can use to find people who can kind of give you a fake interview. What's that website? Is it print.com or print.io? Basically, it's a peer-to-peer network where you, you sign on and somebody else signs on saying that they want to interview somebody. You're saying that you want to get interviewed and they match you for free and you just mm-hmm. uh, do a mock interview over, over the internet. And you've mentioned Leak Code several times. Leak Code has their problems grouped not only by topic, but also by difficulty. You know, I think they have at least like easy, medium, hard or whatever. They probably have other categories too, but how advanced do you need to get to pass a programming interview at, I don't know, a fang company, for example? And how do you find out? I'd say it's really hard to quantify. Like a lot of people say, you know, do 100 code questions and you'll be good. Or like do 150, whatever it is, and, and you'll be good. And I've done actually done a lot. I've like more than 130 questions since I've joined LeetCode. And then actually that was in a very short period of time as well. I would say... You did 130? Yeah, 130. They take me like an hour each. <laughs> Yeah, like it's funny. Like once you see a leak code hard, but you understand that the basic concepts behind it, it becomes a leak code easy. Mm-hmm. I was just talking about this with my friends the other day. It was like a question I was talking about with where it like seems so insane. Basically, it's uh, the sliding puzzle question. You ever have those sliding puzzles where there's an empty space and you can like, like shift the squares to like complete the puzzle? Yeah. So that seems like an insanely hard question, but if you understand the concepts behind it. It becomes super simple and it's just like kind of like clockwork, like a formalized process. You already know how to do the traversals of a graph and you, you already know this, the, all the concepts that apply. It's really just kind of painting the same kind of problem over and over again with different lipstick, you know, different makeup, different appearance of it, just to make sure that you're not remembering something from the past, that you're actually critically thinking about it and then using those concepts, those algorithms, those data structures that you have in your mind to form a, a solution for it. So it's not necessarily about being like super advanced. It's really just about having a good understanding of the basic concepts. You know, that's surprising to many people that if you read about BFS or trees, you have an idea of it. But if you do problems that are in it from different angles, you'll get a better intuitive understanding of it. And that's what helps you look at a problem that seems hard, break it down to the fundamental parts of it, and then it becomes easy. How important is it to know these algorithms in one language over another? 
I would say the language itself doesn't matter, although there's a lot of cases where people can trip you up for no reasons. So like first and foremost, I would say definitely use the language you have the most experience with when you're going for your interview. Because during the interview, you're going to be thinking about how to solve this problem within a lot of time. There's going to be a lot of pressure and simple things can trip you up if you're not really fluent with the language. Like you may be a JavaScript developer, but you're applying for a backend role and you know they use Python or Go. You might feel compelled to use either of those. And, you know, doing simple things like, you know, creating a new structure, like a list or popping from a list or doing a, a sort, you can forget that if you don't use it day to day, that can really mess you up. So I would say stick with the language you know, 100%. And what I guess tricky is some interviewers, and this is a big problem with interviewer training in general, a lot of interviewers aren't trained well. Some interviewers really are really sticklers about what language you use. Like they would see a backend candidate and tell them not to use JavaScript for something. And there, I've seen many people complain about stuff like that. Friends of mine, I've had to be very explicit about that myself when going for interviews because I did all my interviews in JavaScript and I did backend and frontend interviews and full stack. So I crossed the whole gamut. And for the backend ones, that was a concern, but I made sure to mention up front that you know, I use Node.js a lot, you know, that, uh, and I'm also full stack. So JavaScript is really my, what I'm fluent with. So I prefer to use that. There's a case of like, you know, some languages have more, like Java has a lot of data structures to help you with your solution when JavaScript has really anything. So that can make it a bit more difficult, but there's like tips and tricks kind of that you can, you can keep in mind to be able to emulate those things while you're on the actual interview to reduce the, the effect of that. I'm curious how much all of this prep has affected like your code in the job once you get it? Like, do you find that understanding how to solve these more abstract problems has come in handy when you're like day-to-day coding? And does that change between like a front-end job or a back-end job? So unfortunately, (laughs) I don't think it has changed much. Uh, I'm actually like (laughs) really desperately looking for ways to apply what I've learned. (laughs) Uh, The reality (laughs) is there's not many opportunities to use these things because of of the foundations we stand on. For example, if you want to search an array for something or if you want to sort for something, there's usually a sort function built into the language. So you never really need to implement your own sort for for simpler cases. You know, maps already exist. The databases we use are built on trees. So like we have very efficient querying and storage of things. We don't really need to use these things day to day. But if we do get a situation where it comes and it's super, like it's really interesting and super delighting to, to have that foundation and know how to apply it, and there's been some small cases like where you need to, to do a custom type sort, but based on different attributes or like a, or like a partition, like you partition collection of items based on some criteria. Like you pick one spot in your, in your array or the list and then you kind of move everything to the left if it's lower than that value or to the right if it's higher than the value. That's like a very popular concept that you can use to solve a lot of questions that was useful in my day, in my day job at one point. But like I could count on one hand the amount of, amount of times it's helped. I would say, Um, (laughs) but I do want to get into like developing more databases or like um, routers, queues, things like that. So like that foundation will help me in that domain. But as a, as a product developer, like I develop APIs, I develop applications that people use. So it's not as many opportunities to to implement those. Yeah. I always assumed it came into play the further back in the stack you go. Yep. I also wanted to ask you about, I feel like interviews that I've been in have changed as my career progresses, I feel like they were a lot more technically rigorous when I was a newer developer and my resume was a little bit shorter. And as time has gone on, companies I apply to kind of assume that I have the technical skills needed for the job that I'm applying to. Um, Have you found that 
your interviews have changed as your career progresses. I don't know how much that comes into play at bigger companies. So at the there is some similarities to that at bigger companies. So like for example, the Lito type questions, the algorithms and data structures, you would expect the what should we call like L4 or like mid-level to juniors to actually do better than seniors or like L5s on that because they're coming from an environment where they're using it, you know, in their computer science courses or they're they're more like hands heads down on the code specifically. Where you would expect a senior engineer to be able to do architecture or system design session. So like for seniors or for as you progress in your career, the focus is less and less on code and more and more about the entire system, how that all comes together, how you can lead teams, how you can build systems at scale that can handle failures, that fail gracefully, that can mitigate failures. A lot of different scenarios like to think about, and it's more about the overall system architecture as opposed to the algorithmic data structures. But with that said, at these bigger companies, you do get tested on it just the same. It's just that it's not, I feel like there's not much of a, a difference in the valuation of like a, a L4 versus an L5 when it comes to the algorithms and data structures portion. And the L4s usually don't do an architecture session depending on the company. Um, they may focus more on like object-oriented programming depending on what level they are as opposed to architecture. Right. So it seems like at a smaller company, you can tend to get by more on your resume and your projects, but... A lot of these bigger companies, they have just a very rigorous process that includes these like data structures and algorithms. And I don't know, it almost feels like if you think of it as like a game, it's like, well, if you want to work at Google, you need to understand data structures and algorithms. So like, maybe you're not going to use it in your day job every day, but if you want to work there, you got to learn it. <laughs> Basically, and- yeah. <laughs> That's the situation. I talk about this a lot with a few friends of mine in the industry, how, you know, the fact that we're studying architecture, it's like we're studying algorithms, data structures to get these jobs is super useful in the sense that we're learning these these core things that you should know. But the way we're testing for it is kind of is ridiculous because so many people are practicing year by year, maybe even, you know, month by month, people are getting better and better, performing better and better, which increases the bar at which you're evaluated at. So now we're, we're trying to have people solve these problems in like 30 minutes or like 15 minutes or, you know, looking out for how many mistakes they made, you know, comparing one person to the, the previous person. And that's where things get out of hand <laughs> because not only are we looking for people who can solve problems, but now we're looking for people, well, supposedly we're, we're, now we're looking for people who like can do it the fastest and the best. But at the end of the day, that comes down to how much you practice. At a certain point, it's all, it's all about how much you practice, really. Nothing about your future perform, job performance at all. Okay. So let's say that you've found the companies you want. You've been invited to an interview. You've scheduled your hell week of all of your interviews lined up. And some of them will be rejections, but some of them you'll start to get offers. How do you manage those offers? You'd mentioned negotiating one offer against another. How do you even go about that? I feel like I'll give you some context from my own life is just, I've never done that before. Not even once. I feel like maybe historically I've been too timid or I feel like, oh, I'm, I don't know. You just feel too timid to do that. What advice could you give for someone who, who feels like uncomfortable doing that to help them like get the most that they can out of their offers? So I feel the, the same way, actually. I feel like I'm the same personality type. And every time I've negotiated, I've been encouraged by friends of mine to negotiate <laughs> who like, have a better mindset around this. And I've learned a lot from, from them and I kind of built that foundation and moving forward. But basically, the biggest fundamental thoughts about it to help me be comfortable with it is the fact that 
One is a concept of market value. You know, if you do your market research, it will tell you how much you can expect to get paid for a specific role and at a specific company because the companies have different pay skills. So you may think you could be overpaid at Google while at a company who is not as rigorous as Google can pay you significantly less for even a higher role. You would still deserve that higher salary at Google because that's the, the pay skills they have for the people with your skills. So having the data in hand can help you a lot get that mindset, right? Because like, you know, factually, this is what you deserve. Not really about what you feel, just about the market data. There's no reason why you should get less than what everybody else is getting. I think that's the, the biggest thing. And the second is realizing that negotiation is, is not a bad thing. It seems like an aggressive thing, or it seems like something that will make you look bad or make them kind of pull an offer. I had words about that in the past, like, oh, maybe they won't, they will pull my offer if I ask for more money. Maybe they won't like it, I'm focusing on money. But, you know, since then, I've been frank a few different times with recruiters telling them that, you know, the money is the only issue. And they responded how I, I wouldn't have imagined they would respond before. They're completely understanding. They think it makes perfect sense. You know, they want to get back to me with updated details. And then kind of going through that experience and, and learning from that, it helped change my mindset towards negotiation. It's like, once you know that you, you know, you deserve it based on market research and that it's okay to negotiate, that kind of removes a lot of the, the hangups about it. And I feel like, a lot of companies expect you to negotiate. I feel that it's very rare that a company gives their like very best offer right at the beginning. Yep. And so they almost expect you to negotiate up. And so, and like you said, you're worried that they're going to pull the offer and you hear that it happens sometimes, but almost never. Like if I had, I would say like 95% of the time, if you're going to ask for a higher salary, they, I mean, they might say no, but very, very rarely does it seem that they're going to say no. And also because you asked, we don't want to hire you anymore. Like Exactly. And I, and I feel like in those cases, there had to be some, something else, like the way they went about it could have been too brash or something like that. Because and maybe they asked for like an insane amount, who knows? But I mm-hmm. feel like, you know, without those, some kind of outlier like that, there's no real reason for them to pull an offer from the negotiation. I feel like there are some details that are worth talking about in this negotiation process, though. I think one thing in particular is it's important that you have it in writing. Oh, yeah. And it's important that you haven't committed to someone else. So, for example, it would be bad form, for example, for you to have two competing offers and you accept one, or let's say you accept one offer and then you get a better offer after to then come back to that company that you already accepted and say, oh, hey, I've got a, a higher offer. Like you could see how they would be like frustrated by that. Or yeah. if you don't have it in writing, I think that's another thing that's important. I think, yeah, definitely bad form. But I would say a lot of times when I think about what's bad for me to do, I think about what would the company do? Like flipping around. If I was going to start a role and the company decided that role is no, no longer needed, it would immediately just, you know, can be. <laughs> right. You know, that's the, that's the really reality of it. If it's not mutually beneficial, then there's no reason to move forward. So when I have friends who have had offers, who have even like, even some have started for like a week and then they got another offer and they decided to leave to go to that offer. Hmm. And then one, one interesting story, a friend of mine who was going to leave his job because he got another offer after like the first week or so, they actually offered him a, a raise and like a, a title prom- a promotion because of that. Did he keep it? Did he stay? He kept it and he stayed, yeah. <laughs> interesting, interesting. I've heard that's often a bad idea because the company feels like you're on your way out. Anyways, even though you stay, well, which I've always found really interesting. Well for, for him. 
Okay, good. <laughs> How does playing companies off each other work practically? Like, what if one company says, hey, I want a response now, but you have another week before the company B gets back to you about your interviews? So like, far, there seems like there's a lot of like managing that is going to be difficult because you kind of have to keep the other companies close to your chest until you hear back from them. Yeah, I've actually experienced that. For the most part, it's a buff. But like at some point, it becomes real. Um, like with Amazon, they gave me, I think it was a week before it expires. But then I was able to push them back for three weeks total, I think. Hmm. But Google was taking so long to get back <laughs> that I eventually had to let it go, let that one go. But I, I feel like I didn't really try to still keep it online. After the three weeks passed, I kind of felt like, okay, this is probably not a chance of it still being open. So I just said, I just like apologized and said that, you know, the other ones aren't ready. You know, it's really important for me to see all my options out because I'm planning to be at the place I'm going to be at for a good amount of time. So I definitely don't want to make a decision without getting all the information up front. Maybe he would have continued to extend it. And actually, they reached out to me probably a month after I already accepted a different offer, asking if I wanted to come in and do like one round of interview to renew the offer, basically. So I feel mm-hmm. like it's, a, it's really mostly a bluff or a tactic to press you into signing. And I think it's like all negotiations, you really have to know where you stand. If it's a smaller company, for example, they've probably been trying to hire, maybe they're growing and they really need someone. And they've been getting hundreds of resumes. They've interviewed a lot of people. It's expensive. It takes up people's time. And then they've narrowed it down to you finally. And then like the process of hiring is really expensive and they want to hire someone. And if they found you and they've given you an offer, then now actually you do have some leverage because if you join their search process is over and now they have this new really good employee. And so that gives you an opportunity to kind of negotiate back and say, you know what, I actually would like to have a little bit more money or more vacation time or whatever. Whereas I think that maybe if you're going to like Google or Amazon or some of these bigger companies, they want to hire people, but they're not maybe as like desperate as like a smaller company. And so you have to kind of play ball with them a little bit more than, than a company that's a little bit more desperate. I would say... Yeah, that's a great point. And I would say for the bigger companies, that could also still apply too, because it's not just that they have so many people that want to work for them. There's a problem on the other side where they can't find enough people that they consider qualified. Mm. So if you're able to pass their interview, pass their screens, you're extremely valuable to them and they'll be willing to kind of go through it with you to, to get you because you're one of the very few, probably like less than 1% of people who actually pass the interview from start to end. Mm. Mm. About the amount of time it takes and the cost to the company for interviewing people, that's a great point. And that kind of goes into another thing where people ask, how should they schedule their interviews? Like, should they, because a lot of people are afraid to push out the interview dates. They feel like the company is going to say, oh, they're not ready. They need too much time to prepare. Or they think the company will say, oh, that's too long. We can't, you can't really accommodate that. At the larger companies, like the bigger, like the things, they're perfectly fine with that. You know, they can have you in the whole process for years even. It doesn't really matter. And the biggest thing you want to make sure is that you're ready before you go on site. So if you had an interview scheduled with Google, for example, and it was in two weeks and you didn't feel like you were ready, highly suggest that you push it back. You know, you can push it back by a month, by two months, whatever it is. They would even encourage you to do it because they don't want to have a situation where they pay five of the engineers, you know, their salaries to spend their entire day interviewing you, having a, a debrief meeting, the recruiters processing your entire application, all that costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time. Also, if you were going to be a good candidate with just a few more weeks of study, they also miss out on a great engineer. So they would much rather that you take the time you need to, to study, practice, and feel ready before you actually go to the onsite. When I was early in my career, it was actually out of my first programming job. I got a programming job as basically an intern 
I learned how to program on the job. And then I was actually ready to get kind of a market rate job after four or five years. At the time, I was working for this tiny startup and I was making, I don't even know, these numbers are approximately maybe like 70,000 a year. And then I got a job at a big company. It was actually AT&T for like a subdivision of there, which like doubled my salary. I think that they offered me at first, I don't know, 150,000 verbally. And then, which was amazing. It was like more than double my salary. Mm -hmm. It was awesome. And then HR got involved. So the hiring manager gave me this verbal offer. And then they're like, oh, by the way, how much do you make at your current job? And it was like Mm -hmm. less than half they were offering me. And, you know, I didn't want to tell them. They're like, no, you have to tell us. So I I told them. And then they're like, oh, that's too big of a pay jump. We're not going to do that. We're only going to offer you like, I don't know, 120 120 or 130. And they're like, that's it. That's all we can do. Uh, And so I was just like frustrated because it was such, it was like way less than they'd offer me, but it was also such a big jump that I was just like, well, whatever. I guess I'll just take it. So like, what advice can you give for people who like, who face that question, which is like, how much do you want to make? Or like, if you get asked your salary expectations, how do you deal with that? First, definitely get things in writing. Like you mentioned earlier on, I've seen situations, I've been in situations where what was said verbally was not what was actually in the contract the time I was supposed to sign it. So definitely super useful to get things in writing, especially if you're going to have multiple companies to negotiate with. It's always good to have the exact figures in mind as well. And then on to your point about when people ask you about your salary, I'm of the position that you should never tell them your salary. You know, they will say, oh, we're going to get it anyway. People have told me that they're going to get it anyway. That's not true. They don't have access to your information. That's privileged information. They would need to have a court order <laughs> to subpoena your information if they want to get it without your, your permission. So it's not true at all. They won't be able to get it. And it shouldn't be required. Thankfully, California and New York have laws that make it illegal for any company who's headquartered there to ask you that question. So that explains to a lot of a lot of tech companies because they're headquartered in California, even though they're they're global. So depending on what company you apply to, you don't have to worry about that as much. But if you go to a company where they're still asking it or maybe they're still ignoring a rule, definitely just just don't tell them the actual pass out. Just there's no benefit. <laughs> there's no benefit. Yeah. So I just looked it up and also Massachusetts and New York City and there's a lot of other places too that have prohibited asking about salary. Nice. I hope it expands yeah. to the entire country. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that. They actually, you know, women and minorities who are historically undervalued or like paid less, underpaid, that keeps them underpaid because from role mm-hmm. to role, they just get anchored to that previous lowball salary and they get a small bump from that. And then it just continues on and on. Hmm. Yeah, that's so true. What do you, do you answer if, what happens if they ask, what is your ideal salary or what salary are you looking for? So I always give a range. Mm-hmm. Like first I had done, like as we talked about earlier, do your market research, figure out what salary you want. Line is also good research. You can like look at the pros and see like what people are getting or even ask, make a post, ask about it. Levels that FYI is a great website that actually tells you salaries from a lot of people who are reporting it directly to them by year that they join the company, their current role, and years of experience that they have themselves. And it tells you how much money that they're making and what you can kind of expect. So once you have that, that number in mind, don't give the exact number, you give a range. So like the number you want, you know, maybe start with that as a range or maybe minus a few thousand and then up to like bump it up like 30 40 more K, depending on like what the, the skill of your salary is. Have a good range in there to let them know, but definitely they'll give them a solid number. Something I wanted to ask about that is a bit of a tangent is things are looking a little bit grim with the COVID-19 craze happening right now. And it seems like we might be going into another recession. Do you, or maybe you, Nate, as well, have any thoughts about like 
what should someone who gets laid off do? And are there specific industries that maybe they should be targeting business in? I'd say startups are super risky in a recession. Personally, since I'm really working towards fire, like I would stay away from startups and things like that, like really big risky bets. Definitely go towards public companies that have liquidity so that even if, you know, worst case scenario, you know, if you go down, you go up, but you can still get access to the, the capital beneath the shares once you invest. So I think liquidity is super important to have if, it's a, if there's a recession, because other than that, half your income could be tied up in, in stock that's liquid that you can't really sell. And that could be challenging in a time like a recession, especially if you get laid off. I think that's the, the biggest point of it. And then if you recently get laid off, I would say definitely start the job search as soon as possible because as a recession gets worse and worse, it becomes harder and harder to get a job. So I would say focus on getting a new one ASAP. Yeah. You have to imagine that if COVID-19 is, I don't know, a new normal, if there if this is like, then the sort of companies that are going to do well are going to be companies that are like Zoom and Slack and mm-hmm. like remote first companies. Whereas companies that require, I don't know, people to be all gathered together are gonna are going to struggle. Yep, and I think delivery companies as well, like Uber, is in a very interesting position because we're heavily affected by COVID nineteen on a rides business, right? Where people aren't really going places. Right now, a lot of states are restricting people from leaving their homes, so there's a huge, you know, massive drop in, in ridership. But then all these restaurants are forced to either shut down or only do pick up a delivery. Now right. we have Uber Eats where more interesting in getting food delivery. So now there's the business is diversified enough to handle this situation where, you know, one side goes down, but the other side goes up and it could kind of bounce out. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas other companies don't really have that defensibility. Yeah, totally. One other industry I was thinking might be good to target is pretty much anything to do with healthcare or medical supplies. Mm-hmm. Yep. I just did a telehealth doctor's appointment yesterday for the first time. Oh, cool. Uh, it went pretty smooth. So tell me more about FIRE. Where do you learn about that? And what's the basic idea? And what are your thoughts there? So it's, it's super ironic. I actually learned about FIRE when I left my job, trying to the opposite of FIRE, basically. <laughs> so I left my job. I was like working from home. I had a team that was all remote across the globe. And a lot of times I was doing YouTube, autoplay. Some of the finance videos just kept popping up. And I started learning more and more about finance stuff, like high-level investing type stuff, index funds, you know, the safe folks for investing. And then that's where FIRE, I forgot exactly which source, but I learned about FIRE through that. I did a bunch of research on it, and I realized that FIRE is, stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. Uh, and essentially what it is, is you save up a lot of money, so you call your FIRE number, and your FIRE number is the amount of your annual expenses times 25. Uh, and that'll get you a number that if you take 4% from that number, it'll cover your, your living expenses for an entire year. So let's say if you if you spend $50,000 a year to live with, and this is different from your salary because your salary gets taxed and the money you spend, it gets into tax. So like the, it could be a difference between how much you earn and how much you spend. And there's also, because you're getting this money from an invested capital, long-term capital gains rate is much smaller. So you may even be able to get away with less. But let's say $50,000 which is the amount you spend every single year. Multiply that by 25, that means that you need $1.25 million saved up. If you spend 4% of that money each year, you know what the 4% rule says is that, and this goes back to 401ks, where it says that if you just withdraw 4% each year, the balance won't really go down in a significant way. You'll be able to maintain around that same balance across recessions, across bull runs, um, as long as you don't kind of sell everything at once or like panic sell, you stay really strict to that 4%. 
you'll be able to kind of coast with that for the foreseeable future. You know, once I realized that, you know, it made a lot of sense. It's actually what 401ks are. You know, when you're saving up your entire life, not to spend the money when you're older, but to have money that you can draw from when you're older. And that's still invested and still growing as you go on until you, you know, until you don't need anymore or you can hit it off. So I think that really piqued my interest and in realizing that I had a high salary. It was a really good position to do it. But then I kind of made a jump and took a risk to build a startup, which, you know, in one case, it could end up accelerating my path towards fire. But in, in, the, in the more likely case, it could be a huge setback towards fire. Even though I would get a lot of experience, I'd be missing out. And I used to think the opportunity cost was not doing a startup. But in this case, the opportunity cost is not having a stable income that you can build up towards the fire. Because you know, with these salaries that tech companies are paying, you can get fired within the, you know four or five years, as opposed to doing a startup for four years, you know, failing and not having any kind of exit, not having the, the maximum salary you could have had, not being able to sell your equity. That could be a huge setback. And I think if you can get there in four to five years, it makes sense to just focus on that first before you go in and take those big risks. And kind of continually set you back up yourself back until until your old age, basically. Makes sense. All right. So, what resources can you give us for folks who are now looking for a job and they're trying to prep for their interviews? Oh uh, yeah. So, leadcode.com, I would definitely say is a number one resource for that. Reason being is that if you do enough of those questions, you'll start to see the patterns and you start to get the insights you need to be able to solve them when you actually go for the interview. So, definitely leadcode.com is super big. HackerRank.com for the same reason, just a different different UI, different set of questions, but very similar. Geeksforgeeks.com, the number four, that's also pretty useful. I found that earlier on before Lika was as popular. They have a lot of tutorials and like data structures and algorithms and, and stuff like that. A lot of articles, different solutions. CareerCup.com is another one. It was founded by Gail McDowell. She's the one who wrote the Crack and Coding Interview book. They have people you can do mock interviews with there. A lot of advice, forums you can ask questions on. What else? This is that the Pramp.com or, or Pramp.io. They can use for mock interviews. Super useful to be able to know if you're ready to go on set or not. And then there's a few different coding boot camps. Not coding boot camp, but like interview boot camp. One that I'm very familiar with, interviewkickstart.com. I actually did that, but I didn't really follow it. It was a very turbulent time for me. I was traveling a lot. I was trying to push out this new product I was working on and it just didn't have time. But the videos were super helpful. Like the instructors, very clean, very concise. Stanford or other like Microsoft, very reputable instructors who try to give you the insight into the, the different algorithms and data structures. So, you know, whether it's from Interview Kickstart or from YouTube, there's also a Stanford course on YouTube for free. There's many free sources actually on YouTube you can learn about these things. The key is to keep watching them over and over again, which is what I did. Over and over again, I kept watching it until it really clicked, until I really got an intuitive understanding of it. And even if it, it felt like I did before, I would just do it again. Like I would watch it and then maybe a few days later, watch it again. Maybe next week, watch it again, just to really make sure I had that, that really fluent understanding of it. That's like a huge, really huge help towards studying. Okay, Esco, thank you very much for being with us today. No problem. Good to be here.